Section 12 of The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa Green. The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies by Ethel Mary Brody. The Knell of Nat Pagan. Elspeth was right, and it was a foreboding. But had it not come true, Elspeth would have been declared insane, had the neighbors heard the whole story. The fisher folk would have thought her possessed of the evil eye and called her a witch. As it was, nobody knew anything about it, and nobody was to know, for death sealed the only lips that could tell, and thus stopped criticism, and also fulfilled Elspeth's darkest terrors. It was March. The equinoctical gales were at their worst. For some days off the coast of Scotland, the winds had been very rough. The roar of the breakers boomed a roll of thunder as they tumbled and splashed among the rocks and boulders in a long line of writhing surge. They pounded on the sands. They dashed against the cliffs in a white fury like maddened horses. They rushed back only to charge again with renewed rage, and the spray showered the cliffs for many feet upward. Angry clouds drove fiercely across the sky. Flaring sunsets lowered over the sea spattering wild colors on every white cap, and the fisher folk watched anxiously from their huts upon the beach. Near the village stood the manor, the home of Captain Pagan. It occupied an eminence looking over the fishermen's huts and out to the sea beyond. For many miles the coast stretched, fading into the distance, jutting with promontories, steep with precipices, receding with coves and bays, varied by sparse groves of trees in the rich green of the level lands. Points and peaks and indentations so far as the eye could reach ever outlined against heavy gray skies, sometimes reflecting the golden crimson of sunrise and sunset, but rarely did the coast shine clearer below the sunshine and blue skies. Below the cliffs snuggled the fishing village, straggling up a slope. Beyond it extended the beach. The tide rose high and then fell away a hundred feet or more. With the ebb of the tide the waves rolled in to the foot of the precipices and very near to the fishermen's cottages. With its flow it left a strand of golden sand and the scattered stones and boulders sheathed with moss or hanging with seaweed. Captain Nat Pagan received word from his employers that his vessel, the Parthenope, would sail in two days. The captain was a true blue and a born sailor. A word from his employers was equal to a command. He never hesitated in obeying orders under any circumstances or in any weather. The sea he loved, and he was as fearless on land as on water. Indeed, he feared a pirate less than a highwayman. The sea is open and free. Sooner or later comes the warning of the approach of a pirate. But those landlubbers, the captain would exclaim, they will hide behind a bush or sneak around a hedge or jump from behind a fence, pop their guns, and away goes your cargo. Watch, valuables and all. You're lucky if you escape with your hulk. The captain told his wife of his coming departure. The order had come sooner than she expected. Indeed, without knowing why, Elsbeth had been secretly dreading the captain's next voyage. Never had she made any remark, and least of all any fuss when the orders came. But Elsbeth was greatly distressed this time. For the first time she dared to beg him not to go, pleading the equinoctical gales. The coasts of England and Scotland had been strewn with wrecks within the last week. Along the shore for miles were thrown up from the sea broken spars, torn sails, wreckage, and dead bodies vestiges of the wild hurricanes which had shaken the seas. With Captain Nat Pagan, pleading was in vain. He was obdurate. His command had come, and he was bound in duty to obey. 
to obey headquarters was second nature to the captain. Obedience to his commanders, as he called his employers, held sway over him next to his intense love of the sea. He was as determined to go as Elsbeth was fearful of his going, so it ended as most domestic arguments do, in nothing gained or lost. The captain was going. The manor was embowered in trees. The groves guarded it from the blustering attacks of the winds. Small matter how terrible a storm raged, the manor was sheltered and secure. The night before the Parthenope sailed, a strong gale was blowing off the sea. In the manor all was cosy and warm. A great fire of logs blazed on the library hearth. Elsbeth sewed by the evening lamp. The children lay safely tucked into their beds, and the captain was upstairs finishing his packing preparatory to his departure next morning. The maids had gone to the village. Elsbeth sat alone in the library. While she thus sat, worrying about her husband's anticipated voyage, a loud knock rapped on the hall door. Elspeth arose and answered the summons. No one was there. A puff of wind nearly blew out the light in the hall. She heard the distant roar of the breakers beating on the sands and rocks, and Elspeth stared into the darkness with surprise, and then returned to the library. Elspeth had not been seated long before the strange knock sounded again, softer this time. She opened the solid oaken door to be again amazed at seeing no one on the threshold. The lights of the village gleamed among the leaves as the wind swayed and tossed the trees. In the angry gloom of the storm she saw the white surf far below, darting among the crags like the wraiths of the many who slept among the waves. Elspeth lingered a moment out of curiosity, and then swung the door too. Once more, Elspeth returned to the library, but the uncanny knock had disturbed her. To distract her thoughts, she picked up a newspaper. T'was full of accounts of the wrecks which had occurred along the coasts and of the tempests at sea. Her fear increased. How could she overcome this feeling of approaching disaster? And if the future did hold trouble, how was she to prevent it? Captain Pagan was a prosaic, practical man. He would scorn Elsbeth's presentiment as fear, if not actually cowardice cowardice, the very reason to keep him stubborn and dour in resisting her arguments and forebodings. Dread of a storm at sea, he a sailor to be afraid of anything. A hurricane at sea, he would laugh at the idea. Why, the sea was his life, his love, his duty, his work, even his home. Elspeth shrank from broaching the subject. Yet had she not an apprehension of coming evil? Was it not a warning? And should she not listen and do what she could to hinder what she feared? Again the knock rapping loud and clear. Elspeth started, and then called her husband. "'Well, what do you want, dear?' demanded the captain. Elspeth answered, "'I've heard a knock at the hall door three times. I've gone twice, and there isn't a soul outside.' "'I suppose the boys of the village are up to their usual pranks. They know I'm good-natured, like all sailors, but I'll fix them.' And down the stairs hurried the captain. "'I'll hide in the shrubbery and watch.' said he, smiling good-humouredly, and the captain bustled into the library and out of a French window. For some time he stayed outside. Nothing happened and no one appeared. Thoroughly satisfied that it had been either a practical joke or his wife's imagination, he returned to the house as Elspeth opened the door. "'Are you there, Nat?' she called softly. "'Aye, aye,' replied the captain, slipping out from the shrubbery. "'Did anything happen?' asked Elspeth composedly. Nothing to interest or frighten me, returned the captain coolly. Why, dear, 
The knock has sounded thrice since you've been out there among the bushes. Noisy knocks, too. And Elspeth affected a laugh. I came to see if you were playing a joke on me. The captain looked rather bewildered at this. I haven't been near the door. Are you sure you heard the knocks? He asked. So sure that I came in answer to them, suspecting that you were up to a bit of fun just to cheer me up tonight. Nay, not I, said he, shrugging his broad shoulders. The captain's love of fun was a large part of his character, and as Elspeth laughed he could hardly accuse her of an excited imagination. Apparently she was in a mood for fun. So the captain, wisely or unwisely, said nothing. Poor Elspeth. With no ground on which to stand, she could neither protest nor argue, and as an argument fear was out of the question. And love? Well, Nat Pagan would say that he loved her all right, but that he must do his duty, and with him duty mostly came before love. It had been trained into him from his boyhood, and so it must be to the end. Elspeth did not sleep that night. The gale had developed into a hurricane. The thunder of the surf and the thud of the billows against the crags beat into her brain. The ghostly foam in the darkness rose before her like wandering specters, hopeless, despairing. Great breakers seemed to be plunging over their bodies as the captain and she lay quietly in bed. The stories of the wrecks she had read about pictured themselves in her mind so distinctly, so terribly, as if she had beheld them with her own eyes. And white, dead faces, ghastly and silent, stared at her out of the obscurity, the horror of the night. Battered spars, like human lives cut short, heaved on the bosom of the tempest-tossed sea. Cries of agony shrieked with the wind, and there in the midst of the sullenness of the sea and the sorrow of the storm, a huge black hulk, like the god-forsaken flying Dutchman, towered above the ocean billows, the seething foam, and came diving toward her. On and on it came, swaying and trembling, plunging as the sea pounded its bulkworks and broke over its decks, and out of the night and the terror clanged the bell-buoy like a knell tolling, tolling a warning to the living, tolling, tolling the departure of human souls. Rap, rap, rap. The knocks again. Elspeth suppressed a scream. The captain drowsily opened his eyes. What's the trouble? Nightmare? asked he in sleepy tones. No, twas nothing, shuddered Elspeth. The storm has made you nervous, dear, remarked Captain Nat. No, no, not nervous and Elspeth slipped out of bed and hurried to the window, watching the tempest of wind that whirled among the trees and out on the turbid ocean. "'Well, what's the matter now?' demanded the captain, rather annoyed and sitting up in bed. "'I'm only anxious,' pleaded Elspeth timidly. "'Anxious?' "'Anxious about what?' inquired Captain Pagan, exasperated at being wakened out of good sleep. "'Oh, how I wish you would postpone your voyage,' begged poor Elspeth. "'Postpone my voyage?' exclaimed Nat Pagan, amazed at the suggestion and almost angry. Nonsense! Wait till these hurricanes are past. They will soon be over now. I'm certain your employers would not mind waiting a few days more or less. And Elspeth's baby-like face was wet with tears. But the captain's pride and indignation rose. Stuff! he exclaimed. You mustn't think of it for a minute. I would not ask them to wait. As for a hurricane, I am a sailor. My ship has breasted a hundred gales and tempests as bad as this. Surely the wife of a sailor wouldn't be a coward. Elspeth was silenced. The captain rolled over on his side and was soon snoring contentedly. Poor Elspeth! What dark visions flashed before her inward sight! 
Every moment she was tortured by fear and anxiety like demons of Hades, and how the wind howled around the manor. Rap, rap, rap. There they were once more. Would they never cease? A jagged streak of lightning darted across the clouds and lit the room as brightly as day. Elspeth gave a cry. Captain Nat Pagan awoke, irritated at having his sleep again disturbed. What on earth is ailing you? groaned the captain, provoked. You start at the least sound. Imagination or nerves, dear. I do feel miserable, said Elspeth timidly. Do light a candle. The captain arose somewhat unwillingly, lit a candle, and placed it beside her on a table. I can't sleep, Nat. I'm so wretched, cried Elspeth. You can call me a coward if you will. You may say it is imagination if you like. You may laugh at the knocks as a joke and scorn them as nerves, but I know. I know. Nat, dear, don't go on this voyage. I feel terrible things about it. Think of the children. Think of me. And womanlike, Elspeth burst into tears. Captain Pagan was overwhelmed by the tears, but not by the arguments. He comforted her in his big-hearted way and dried her tears. For the rest of the night, he sat beside her and did his best to cheer her. But it was in vain. Elspeth, with her round blue eyes full of tears and her full sweet lips trembling, still pleaded her cause, and the captain still remained like adamant. Elspeth maintained her ground from feeling, from love and anxiety apparently without reason or sense, and the captain grew more determined. He held by his will sheer obstinacy. He held by a man's pride and a sailor's absolute fearlessness. So these two, bound so close together, remained far apart on the subject of tomorrow's sailing. For the first time the sea was an abyss between them. Courage and duty were on one side of it, love and fear on the other. No bridge crossed to unite them. An event of human life and feeling, which has been enacted a million times since the world began. Next morning the captain bade farewell to Elspeth and the children. The storm had lessened. The wind had fallen, the sun arose clear, warm, and bright, sparkling out over the sea and shining on the wet grass and drooping foliage of the trees. Captain Pagan bade his wife an affectionate good-bye, and although neither of them mentioned the subject of last night's discussion, it remained in their hearts and minds. The captain tried to inspire her with hope and courage by his words and caresses, and Elspeth felt his sympathy and kindness, reciprocating with her love and her faith in him. But dread of the future did not sleep. After her husband had gone, the brood of anxious thoughts and harrowing fears returned in greater force, and with less resistance. Elspeth was alone. That evening the sun went down in a wild sea of fiery red clouds. The whole sky was ablaze. Banks of flaming clouds piled on one another as they heavily ploughed across the sky. The sun showered over the ocean a million sparks of light and licked every billow with a tongue of fire. The ruddy glow flared on every cap of sea-foam. As the surf crashed on the beach, it flashed with the tumultuous red of the setting sun, and the cliffs and sands reflected the angry hues as if alive with the same fire. It boded ill for the night. And that night a terrible tempest burst over land and sea. The hurricane of wind lashed the waves into fury, and flung volleys of foam against the precipices and crags. It crested the rocks and filled the clefts with a maddened froth like lions at bay. The billows heaped one on another and plunged and tumbled with a mighty crash over the sands. They flowed back and rushed furiously at the breastworks of safety, regiment after regiment of hungry, growling waves. They dashed into the huts of the fisherfolk, and the fishermen sought refuge in places of security. 
On the far side of the village from the cliff's head shone out sharp and steady the beacon light. Away on the reef, now hidden beneath the snowy manes of the lions of the sea, the melancholy, monotonous clang of the bell-buoy rang out its note of alarm. Lights moved up and down the village and along the coast, like restless spirits seeking to aid those in danger and distress. On a night like this, the village never slept. And the tolling of the bell on the reef boomed long and mournfully, tolling, tolling a warning to the living, tolling, tolling the departure of human souls. Elspeth looked from her bedroom window. Elspeth saw it all. All night the light burned in her room. Sleep had deserted her. The power of the elements, the terror of the tempest, had entered her soul. Yet she knew that God was behind it all, and that she had no need to fear what he allowed. How the clouds raced across the sky, surly and threatening. How the wind screamed and rushed through the trees, and the foreboding of evil, how it tormented her. Who was warning her? Who, if not God? What was the meaning, the reason of this torture of fear and dread? God help me she cried in her misery and terror. Poor struggling human soul! God is still greater than we. His ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts than our thoughts, and his ways than our ways. And Elspeth was learning God's immutable and irrevocable truth. Next day the storm continued. Every hour news came up to the manor from the village of the various pieces of wreckage washed up on the beach. The children were kept at home, but Elsbeth haunted the streets of the village, the fishermen's huts on the beach, and the coast guard on the cliff. She questioned no one, spoke to no one, but death stared up at her from the wild ocean, weird and hopelessly. God is merciful, and God was merciful to her. Elsbeth passed like a ghost among the villagers. When the shadows of evening gathered over the fishermen's huts, she slipped away to the manor on the hill. That night, Elspeth became very ill with a fever, brought on, said the doctor, from exposure to the cold winds and the damp, also from some nervous mental strain. Elspeth was wildly delirious, haunted by phantoms of the sea. And then the news came, the sad tidings of Captain Nat Pagan's death at sea, for a great wave had swept him from the helm of the Parthenope. No one told Elspeth. She would not have understood it if they had. But she knew, as women sometimes know, some weeks later, Elspeth slipped into the mystery beyond this life, where dread and anxiety have no place, where love is life and all things. The abyss was bridged between Elspeth and her husband. It was the knock of death on the great hall door. It was a knell that boomed over the reef, away out in the wild sea, the knell of Nat Pagan, tolling, tolling a warning to the living, tolling, tolling the departure of a human soul. End of section 12. Recording by Melissa Green.